0: Welcome to Color Country Politics where we discuss all the important political issues facing Iron County, Utah. Our guests include elected officials and community leaders in or representing Iron County. This is episode 66. A bed for your head won't keep you not dead.
1: Hey, welcome back to Color Country Politics. I am Jenny Hendricks along with my co-host, Jesse. <laughs> And we have a really, really fascinating guest, uh, guests, we've got two for you today. We have Dr. Jared Gray with us and Becky Bronson. So probably everybody is familiar with Dr. Jared Gray. He is the hospitalist at Intermountain uh, Cedar City Hospital. A hospitalist is an on-staff hospital doctor that takes care of the inpatients, those staying the night at the hospital. Well. I just learned a new term. There you go. So, welcome, Dr. Gray. Thank you for being. And Becky Bronson is the communications manager at Intermountain Healthcare. Thanks for. <laughs> All right. Well, with those introductions, let's just get started. I know that time is is very short today. So, Dr. Gray, will you? I know that you spent some time in New York at the beginning of the the coronavirus thing. Will you just share what your experience was like? Yeah,
0: so uh, back in April, Intermountain Healthcare sent hundred medical providers back to New York. Uh, We went in two different groups of 50. Um, I was in the first group. We uh, we went to Northwell Medical, which is the largest um, medical system in the state of New York. And the hospital I worked at was Long Island Jewish, which is their biggest facility. Um, We went, uh, uh, we left, I wanna say April, 13th or 14th, so it was about a week past the peak in New York. Uh, by the time we got there, uh, Long Island Jewish is typically about a 570 bed hospital. They, at the time we arrived, had 600 and 650 patients. They had peaked out about 730. So they had expanded their hospital um, the week before by about 200 patients. The ICUs are usually 50 beds. Um, they had expanded out about 130 to 140 40 beds. Um, changing post-operative units, um, medical units in the ICUs, double bunking ICUs, and and basically uh, it filled their hospital to um, over 120% capacity and of those patients, 90% of them had Um, uh, COVID-19. So we went out there for relief, um, but also to educate ourselves and kind of get a sense of what, um, what this might look like other places and what we need to do to prepare as a medical system here in Utah. Um, the the first day that I was there working with the person who was trained, the physician who was training me um, uh, to do the computer system out around the hospital, uh, you you could tell he was just whipped. I mean, he had been morally defeated and just destroyed. And you know, through the first day, it was pretty much well. We've done this and we've done that. We have tried this and nothing works. These patients just come to the hospital and they just and um, while that was a little bit of an overstatement in his behalf, but um, they had just been doing that nonstop for two weeks, and you just, the patients just wouldn't get better. It didn't really matter what we did. Um, they either got well or they didn't. Our, our, uh, as a medical provider, you hope to make some sort of impact either in helping somebody through their suffering or helping them get better. And, and it was really a, a very disheartening thing. Um, the other thing that was pretty evident um, when I arrived was the, overhead, the volume of overhead calls. And so uh, in the hospital, there's two calls. One is a code blue, which means a patient is actively dying and that's a call for help. And the other is a rapid response, which means somebody is rapidly decompensating, whether their heart rate is going up too fast or, going, or is slowing down too much. And, and the best way to look at it is almost like a pre code. And you're trying to get help there to, um, to get those to. You know, extra hands to help out with those patients. Uh, it was so obvious to me that I was there, so I started tallying the first day how many overhead calls there were. And the first day I was there, there were 23 overhead calls in a in a 10-hour shift. So about every 20 minutes, uh, there was some sort of call for distress. And um, by comparison, I probably in, in a year's time in Cedar City, I'd probably respond to maybe eight calls in an entire year, maybe 10, um, and you know, I'm here roughly half the time. My partner's covered the other half. So, you know, we had maybe 25 to 30 overhead calls in the space of a year. The average, uh, the low was uh, 12 and the high was about 35. And, and they very disruptive because you have to stop, listen overhead. Okay, is that my patient? Um, no, am I on that unit? No, okay, so then I can go back back and do my work. Um, the uh, The other thing that was, was just interesting about this. It was just, I have never seen a hospital dominated by a disease. Um, even in the worst of, you know, influenza seasons and respiratory virus seasons, you know, in our hospital and other hospitals I've worked at, the hospitals may fill up transiently for a couple of days and then back off um, and then fill up maybe for a day or two, a week from there. And, you know, but even in the worst of the seasons, maybe 15 15- Cops, 20% of the patients come in with a respiratory illness. To have one solitary illness just completely obliterate an entire, really, medical system because our experience in Long Island Jewish was what they saw at every single hospital. And, and so that was just, to me, just, I can not even describe what that was like. And it, it, uh, it still sits with me just to walk up and down those halls and just see how many people were sick and how many people were running around and... Um, compared to what we were normally used to. It's just indescribable,
2: really.
1: That's an amazing story. And I think that we've been so far removed from anything mm-hmm. like that. It's, it's hard to relate. So I, I'm grateful that you had that experience and, and that you're able to share it with us. I think that uh, makes it a little bit more real. So let's... Um, Let's talk just a little bit about the the, the mandate, um, and and I think that there was some new information today. The governor has declared a state of emergency for hospital overcrowding and a case surge, and that's uh, been extended. I think until the twenty third of this month. Um, there's a there's a lot of experts on Facebook that have opinions about this. <laughs> And uh, and it's been a, a, a really controversial and politicized topic locally. So, can you just kind of take us through the masks, the distancing? Is it important? Does it not matter? Who who should be doing it? Just kind of the science of that. All right,
0: So so most of the science that uh, we look at with. Uh, Distancing, you know, social or physical distancing, which is the word I prefer. I hate the word social distancing, um, and masks uh, actually predates COVID. Um, the best, the best review of that data was in a review from 2011, and it came out after um, swine flu, uh, which was 2009. And so, what they showed is that uh, with respiratory illnesses that are spread by droplets, meaning the virus is encased in the micro Uh, the the micro droplets that we cough and talk and we sneeze uh, that in average conversation those can spread up to about six feet past somebody you know the higher volume is closer in if we cough we push them out further if we're breathing hard like exercise we push them out further and and those droplets carry carry the virus and uh, that's that's um that's where the distance kind of plays into how much time do you spend in that close space with somebody who's sick. Um masks uh play into that because the uh, the droplets uh are condom the Um they're you know, there's a variety of masks, and you can excuse me, you can rank them in effectiveness from nothing up to an N95. And but each level. Does something, an N95 collects 95% of particles that are a micron or smaller. Um, the droplets that we talk about are about about ten, uh, five to ten microns in size or bigger. Um, a standard surgical mask also catches a micron or smaller, but because it's not form fitted to your face, it'll, it they figure it only catches about 70%. Um triple layer cloths is going to catch more. Double layer will catch more than triple layer. Single layer will catch more than nothing. Um, but uh, even even the even the um, cloth masks will pick up some of the particles, uh, the droplets that carry the particles and, and retain them. Um, the uh, the science behind it is is more. Uh, the one thing that's nice about the Calcom Review is they actually had a couple of studies looking at mask use in, in public places and not just in, because uh, the majority of the studies are in, in medical studies. How do we prevent infection from, you know, a surgeon in in the operating room and uh, from us, from medical professionals picking up from one patient and passing it to another. Uh, but the, uh, even the, the most modest um, benefits show that the, the masking, universal masking, in high spaces, will reduce viral transmission by about 30%. Um, if everyone wore an N95, it would be closer to 90%. But that's not a practical thing, and they're just—they're they're, more—you know—they're a little more expensive, and they're—and they're N95 is just miserable to wear. I mean, it's just not a—you know—you—you you sound like you're talking through a coffee can, and and uh, at the end of the day, you have permanent lines compressing all the way around your face, and it's it just—you know—but uh, people, I think the the issue with masking is complicated because part of it I think is that too many people want an all or none solution. It's, well, if it doesn't work all the time, then why are we doing it all? And, and to me, I'm, you know, I, I'm a very, I hope I'm a very caring and compassionate physician, but at my heart, I am a cold calculated mathematician. I mean, this, this, we will win this by math. We will win this by science because you know, a 30% reduction over time will stamp it out. It just takes, you know, it would take longer than most people have the patience for. Those um, those are the studies. So, back to the original question: the distancing is because how the the virus is spread. It spread mostly by droplets. Um, the masks are there to catch the droplets, and you know, the the best place is what we call source control. You want a mask on the person who is sick. The trouble with this virus is, en- enough of the people are minimally sick and don't know it, and that's why you know universal masking is is beneficial because we, we keep people who don't know they're sick from spreading it as much as they they may without it.
1: That's fascinating. That is uh, you don't you don't hear that on Facebook. No. <laughs> So thank you for that. Um, I had not heard that it was a a 30% reduction, but that makes sense. If there's a 30% reduction going forward, we're eventually going to Mm -hmm. reduce it to at least to be um, manageable.
0: Um, We We talk about logarithmic spread, which is where if someone is spreading it to more than one person at a time, you get exponential spread you get exponential reduction as well. If you can make any sort of modest reduction.
1: I like that exponential reduction. I'm going to remember that term. Um, can you speak to kind of the reality of what is happening with COVID here locally? I mean, I, you know, there's a, there's updates that are given out by the health department and, you know, and, and different people and um it, it, I think people kind of get numb to those daily numbers. You know, it's just, okay, well, I guess there's more. I saw something um, just before we started taping that said uh, today, which we're taping this on November 20th, um, we we set a new record. So what does that mean? What does that mean for, for our local community?
0: Be- Becky, am I okay to talk specifics on our hospital? I just, I just don't want to violate like, anything.
2: If it's the same data that's used by the health department, we're okay. But I, okay. I believe that we can't report exact COVID numbers inside the hospital as per privacy.
0: Okay, I'll give general. will give generalities. So, so um, last week is kind of when things started to blow up locally. I was up in the mountains, and so I kind of had an idea of what was going on, but I, I wasn't here. Um, before I left, we had so from. From about May through the end of October, we've taken care of in our hospital somewhere in the neighborhood of 30, 35 patients. About a third of those have been in the ICU, maybe a little more than a third. Um, most of our sick patients we transferred to Dixie just based on the protocols that Intermountain had set up.
2: And I to really quick too. I've got to give Dr. Gray some credit. The fact that we can keep COVID patients is directly due to Dr. Gray's experience volunteering in New York. <laughs> Prior to his experience there, every COVID patient was sent out, but he learned he has the expertise to bring to our hospital here at Cedar City just so that we can keep some of these COVID patients. So hats off to Dr. Gray for that.
0: And that was one of the reasons I went to New York. That's one of the reasons I volunteered was so that we could be ready here. So up to, up to last, up to last, before last week, we would have one to two patients on average in a week, Uh, maybe one, occasionally we had two or three at once and then nothing for a week or two. Um, When I I came back on service on Sunday, um, between Sunday night and Tuesday morning, we had 11 COVID patients uh, in about 24, in about a 24 hour span, so... um, you know, we we maxed we maxed out our ICU. Our medical floor was probably 85, 90 percent full, and of the hospital census of around forty percent were COVID nineteen. Um, and so, we've kind of worked through that state this week. Dixie um, has Dixie has been. Um, Roughly the same ratios, but obviously higher volumes of patients just because it's a bigger hospital. And our, from, from our local facility, uh, Dixie is kind of our risk zone because if they fill where they're overflow, and they're also where we send our sickest patients. So if they're full and we have somebody who really does need multiple subspecialty care, we can't send them there. So, you know, I look at Iron County as Southwest Utah because what's happening in Dixie does directly impact us. Um, I think the, I think one of the things that people, when they look at, so I'm looking at the, the uh, Utah Health site right now, and it says, you know, 533 COVID patients, 182 in the ICUs, um, non-COVID beds filled 57%, ICU beds 89%, ICU beds at the referral center 94% full. I, I think people have a misconception of what it means to have a medical bed. Um, they think that, you know if there's a hundred beds it's kind of like going to the grocery store if there's you know if there's still 30 beds left that means there's still 30 things on the shelf um, hospitals can't staff on a regular basis to their highest capacities because if they did we'd go broke um, we never run we never are we typically run around 50 to 60 percent of our volume uh, maybe in, in a smaller hospital it's more complicated we're normally on the very low end or the very high end of our senses and our abilities. And so we we understand that, that we're the nurses, doctors, we're going to staff to about half of our volume with the understanding that there are going to be stretches of time where we stretch above that. And then we compensate that because there's going to be stretches of time where we go below that. And, and so we always go from overworked to underworked within a week. And, and so, um, you know, so that's when, when you say there's an available bed, the question is, is there available staff? Is there available nurses or doctors to take care of that? And so if we run at 90, even if we run at 80% capacity every day for, for five, six, seven weeks in a row, um, we are going to overrun our staffing capacity. We do not have the nurses to take care of that. Um, from a doctor's perspective, um, we, we will be overrun as well. Um, if you count this week through the end of the year, uh, because I'm going to have to go work at Dixie to help them out, I will have two days off between now and the end of the year where I have the work to do. And I, I take that as part of my job, but that is not sustainable. That is not a sustainable thing. And, you know... If you add three ICU patients, you need to add two ICU nurses per shift. So that means you have to add four ICU patients per or nurses per day, and you have to do that for seven days. And that just they don't materialize out of midair. The second thing that's a major deal right here to me is when we went to New York, they, the Eastern Seaboard was really the only place that this was happening. In the United States. I mean, there were pockets in Louisiana and, and California and stuff, but we were able to mobilize assets from Georgia, from Iowa, from Kentucky to go out and help in New York. Um, and that's how they got through that uh, initial surge was they were able to mobilize assets from from uh, other places. Um, right now, the these the this wave is just broad spread across the entire country there is not anybody that's going to be able to move around and make and help each other out we are we are on our own and we need to be prepared to be on our own for the immediate future and the near future as
1: well my I, i've mentioned this before on the program a, a cna at primary children's for us. Um, She was telling me the other day that all of them are on mandatory overtime and she's going, you know, to to Mm -hmm. different hospitals in the Salt Lake Valley. And it was interesting. And I never thought about this, but I think one of the talking about the efficiencies of of what's happening, she was talking about going to a new hospital and, you know, learning their systems and, and learning the people. And, and so to your point of the, you know, and, 80% full is, is really kind of a hundred percent full because you have the beds, but you don't necessarily have the staffing and to have all of the medical professionals putting everything that they've got into this for an extended period of time. I, I totally get that burnout. Um, Becky, what are you seeing from your perspective as far as the healthcare workers and their ability to sustain this? Mm
2: -hmm. We, a film crew we, here. Sort of. You, you, am I muted? Can you hear me okay? Yeah, yeah, thanks. There, I'll speak. Um, <laughs> yesterday, we had a film crew here at Cedar City Hospital um, with Intermountain Healthcare doing a, a video on how COVID is affecting our rural areas. Dr. Gray was a part of that, and several of the staff on the medical-surgical floor were interviewed. Um, it was heart-wrenching to listen to what our Our caregivers are caring the burden that they're shouldering. Um, You know, they there's one nurse that said, "I have to find night care for my children as well. I haven't had hardly any time off." She said, "I worry about my family, but you know, my family here at work is is still family to me too." And it was was heartbreaking to hear about. You know, they want to do a good job. They got into this profession because they want to help and they want to take good care of every person that comes to the hospital. When those ratios get stretched and those, and there isn't sufficient time off and there's major burnout and the stress, the overwhelming stress, you know, someone like me who um, doesn't work out on a, as a frontline caregiver, uh, just to walk down the hall and see all of the the, the COVID rooms, um, it, it's stressful. And they walk in there and out of there dozens and dozens of times a day to take care of these patients. What they're going through is excruciating. And it's not going to let up anytime soon. And I think when they were talking with Dr. Gray yesterday, that was one of the things that stood out for me is Dr. Gray said, you know what, This this ship has sailed. You know, it's not as if we can say, hey, everybody, let's put on your mask and things will get better because that and maybe, Dr. Gray, you can speak to that more. But it stuck with me that, you know, uh, that what has happened has now rolled forward and we are seeing the fruits of it. And and the governor's mandate is an attempt to slow it. But 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 that 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 ship has sailed. I mean, we're this isn't I, I in my Hard and Dr. Gray can speak to this. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Would you say that, Dr. Gray?
0: Good. So um, there, so there were two things I thought that I wanted to comment on. One was the nursing ratios. Um, people will look at the the casualty rates that they had in New York and New Jersey, and, and they were quite a bit higher than than uh, they have been across parts across the country, and. Some of that's just the availability of treatments that we have now, Other, the, the primary thing was, was nursing ratios. And so on an average medical floor, um, you, have, you should have one nurse per every five patients. In an ICU, it should be one to two, and depending on the severity of the illness, one to one, meaning one nurse per patient. Um, in New York, on the medical floors, they were one to 12 to one to 15. And in the ICUs, they are one to four to one to five. And nursing is the lifeblood of a hospital. They are, the nurses and the nurses' aides are what keep patients well. Um, doctors are the captains of the ships, but we are part of a bigger team. And, and so if a nurse is so busy that she cannot take a basic set of vitals to be able to respond, you know, notify a doctor that there's an abnormal lab, notify a doctor that the patient's vital signs have changed, um, you're going to have poorer outcomes. And nowhere else in the country really has experienced that level of um, crisis or cat- 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 catastrophic nursing ratios. And it contributed, I would, I would dare say, 30% of the mortality could have been attributed simply to care, uh, not being able to re- re- uh, render basic or standard care. And so when we freak out, and I use the word freak out very um, Justly, When we freak out about getting too many patients for our nurses to take care of, that is why. Standard nursing ratio is very in place because they are felt to be the absolute best. Uh, They represent the best standard of care that can be offered at any given time. Um, Back to the second point, um, really the diet has cast. Um, What happened in the state in September and October has set in set the cascade of events that is going to affect our hospitals and our community over the next three to four weeks. Um, you know, right now, I, on average the patients we take care of in the hospital are seventies and eighties. And we do have them as young as 49. Um, but, you know, those 80 year olds weren't having an octogenarian problem. They got these, they got the infection from a 20 year old. They got it from a 35 year old or, or their, grandchild or their their child and so when the cases first started coming through in september it's like oh it's just the college kids are out having fun and and it's no big deal because they're the one they're not going to get sick and that's correct but you can watch in every single area that's had a major outbreak the cases started in young people they started in the 15 to 30 year old crowd and they just Another two weeks, they ramped up into the 40-year-old crowd. And two weeks later, they ramped up into the 60-year-old crowd, and until it got to the 80-year-old crowd. We have been fortunate that we have not had an outbreak in any of our local uh, in Cedar City in our local nursing homes. Because if it gets in the nursing homes, it will be um, it will be a bloodbath. And um, but you know the we are going to have to deal with what is in place now. The question is how much is the pain going to be and how long is it going to last? And that is where uh, the public in general uh, has an impact. And the question is whether they want to have an impact. And that impact is by following masking mandates, by limiting contact, making their visits to places as brief as they can, and just keeping distance and giving time and having some patience with the process because if we continue to ramp up, you know, looking at our cases in Utah today, we're over 4,500. and uh, You know, we're going to bear the fruits of that love in four to six weeks as those cases filter from the 20-year-olds into the 80-year-olds. And, and at some point, we have to figure out a way to, to break this trend. and. Um, I uh, worry. I worry for where we're heading at this point.
1: So, what is your your thought process on what's coming at us in the next, you know, six weeks, three months, six months? What what is what is the next? What does our future look like?
0: So, I think I think over the I could I could say fairly confidently between now and the end of the year, uh, we're going to see. Uh, what we see now in the hospital is going to be the norm and and we may see more um what happens after the beginning of the year is a lot more complicated because we will strike into uh, standard flu season um there's not a lot known about what happens if somebody gets a co-infection meaning they get influenza and coronavirus at the same time will they multiply their effects will they um not multiply their effects, we will one dominate over the other? Don't be really nice. Um, we have our fears that they will multiply um, and maybe they will in certain populations. So we could see a decrease in cases and an increase in severity of patients who see in the hospital if we see a multiplying effect between those two diseases. Now, um, and then the other impact is what's happening now as far as case volume will reflect out to about six weeks and so where what is our case volume in the state in around Christmas will really reflect what goes on in January and February. And so that's why it's a little hard. I, I don't feel confident predicting out past a six week window, because you can really look at what's going on in your town right now and kind of get an idea where you're going to be in six weeks based on based on the, the percentage and volumes. But um, you know, if we don't put a of any sort of hold or break on this it's what we're seeing right now is just going to keep going on and through the through this, the winter months
1: okay um we wanted to talk just <laughs> a little bit about the holidays because we've got Thanksgiving coming up and and Christmas so you know that's a those are important family times and, and events and um, I know we've been encouraged to, to limit that what are your thoughts on how we should handle the holidays coming up
0: I think with the holidays, uh, this would be a year to limit it to people that you have frequent, regular contact with, you know, whether it's within your family or outside of your family. If there's, if there's somebody that you have frequent, regular contact with, um, you've probably already spread whatever you want to spread amongst each other. Now, the, there's, there's a website, and I wish I could give you the link, where you can actually click on your county Put the number of people that are going to be in a room, and it can tell you the percentage odds of somebody being positive in your room. And um, the uh, and um, one of our ex-ER docs, I can, I can pull it off his website, his uh, Facebook page, and forward it to you guys. But he figured for for Utah in general, if you have ten people in a room, the odds of one of them being COVID positive is thirty-two okay. percent. Oh. And and so that will vary by county. Um, Salt—he's in Salt Lake County, so they're a little bit higher rate. Um, I haven't looked at it for Iron County. I looked at it a couple of months, a uh, couple of weeks ago because I thought it was fascinating, but it didn't—it didn't really change what I did. So <laughs> I didn't look at it too far. But um, you know, everybody loves to be with family. We all want to be with family. Um, Everybody has somebody in their life that would be considered high risk. And the question is, what is your tolerance of the risk for that person? What is that person's tolerance of risk? Natalie that really should drive decisions of, um, you know, do we invite grandpa for for Thanksgiving? If grandpa's 90 and he wants to be in heaven and he doesn't care and and all the people who would be involved are in the same boat, then let grandpa come. If, you know, if you would... Spend the rest of your life regretting that you give it to your grandpa, then maybe you should wait a while to see it. And so it really depends on your tolerance of risk. But um, they've recommended not having large gatherings with people who don't have immediate contact with on a regular basis. And maybe that's sound advice. But individual decisions should be based on individual tolerance of risk and individual understanding of the consequences of those risks.
1: No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, before we let you go, I just want to kind of put it out there. Is there anything else that you would like this community to know, uh, Dr. Gray or, or Becky? Is there any, I mean, th- we're going to push this out to as many people as we can. What, what does Iron County and, and Cedar City need to know um, about this? Well, I'll do it.
2: I'll jump and do it. i answer mine and then I'll let it, it end with Dr. Gray. Um, from the perspective I sit out, what I seem to run into, and I, I run, I do a lot of community relations, I talk to lots and lots of people every day in the general public, and oftentimes they'll say, what's the big deal? You don't have a lot of people at Cedar City Hospital, why, why you know, what's the problem? But they need to understand that Cedar City Hospital um, is, when we have complex patient needs, we send them out. Um, when those larger hospitals like Dixie Regional become full, just as Dr. Grade indicated, those patients need to stay here. But But the public needs to consider that one wreck on I-15 or one flu outbreak locally fills our ICU. And one thing that has surprised me working at a hospital is those numbers jump fast. And sometimes in the morning, what the number is changes radically to that evening. Uh, even here in our small community. So so when we slow the spread, when we're part of the solution, we are protecting our local hospital and our caregivers. Um, just because we're not bursting at the seams and sticking people in the hallways doesn't mean we aren't carrying a great deal of stress. One thing I heard a, a week ago is um, hospitals are considered full at 80% uh, capacity. So when you're seeing these numbers jump past 90 um, this is cause for concern and it's time for action. Um, I, I think people need to understand that, uh, the mandate, the mandate is important because, um, it helps, you know, there's a lot of argument out there and, and people assert their rights. It's, it's unfortunate that they've taken something that's meant to be protective and helpful, like a mask and made it a political thing. Um, it's a kind thing. It, I may have COVID and not know it and walk around and touch door handles and cough and itch my face and touch something. Um, and and when I, when I wear a mask, I am thinking about the welfare of my neighbors, my friends and my community, the people that I work with here at the hospital um, to, to wear a mask is a kind thing. It's not a political thing. And so uh, making sure and I like Dr. Grace point to socially distance I don't like that because I do believe there are uh, consequences of, of of making people feel isolated um, but physically distancing is totally doable and it doesn't socially distance you um, you just are mindful and conscious of making sure to stay six feet away and and that's a kind thing to do as well we are a community When we come into a crisis in a time of need, we respond with goodness and kindness. And that's what what I would want to leave with anyone watching this is, when I see you with a mask on, I think of you as a kind person, a supportive person. I don't look at it as a political statement. I look at it as a sense of community coming together to help one another.
1: Very well said, thank Uh, you. Dr. Gray, what are your final thoughts?
0: Um, I, I think I, I've said uh, quite a bit of what I want to say. I, I, I do think I want to emphasize that we all know somebody who's high risk. Um, and, and I think that, you know, those, those are the we talk about trying to protect the, the highest risk population, and I haven't had anybody give me a good answer on what that looks like. And part of it is, few across our population, how many of us are overweight, how many of us are over 60, how many of us have diabetes, how many of us have had a heart attack. And and then the second question is: Do you live with somebody who's overweight? Do you live with somebody who's had a heart attack? Do you live with somebody who has diabetes? And so, you personally may have low risk, but people that you care about are not. And um, the the other thing is, and I saw this on uh, on Facebook somewhere that said that um, the frontline healthcare workers are no longer the frontline. Uh, the frontlines are the communities. And, you know, how the next three months play out, the next six months play out, will be entirely dependent on, on how we do in our communities uh, with helping reduce, reduce the spread of the virus and um, how we do well.
1: Yeah, fascinating and, and valuable information. I'm just amazed. Thank you so much uh, for your time and for what you're doing. And, um, you know, I think this community is, is what Becky described. It's kind, it's, it's generous, it's good. And, and I think given the right information, I think people will make the, the best choice. Um, so that's kind of what we're trying to do here is, is get the, the best information out there that we can. And I, I just can't think of a, a, a more timely or, 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 you know, better guest to have on. You're so fabulous. Thank you so much. Um, we're going to push this out there and, and get the information to as many people as we possibly can. So thanks again for coming on.
2: Yeah. thank you.
1: All right, everybody, this has been Color Country Politics, and uh, hopefully we've given you some good information today, some, some valuable thoughts for you. I'm Jenny Hendricks, along with Jussie Harris, <laughs> and we'll see you next time.
0: You've been listening to color country politics a production in cooperation with utah politico hub and graciously sponsored by century 21 prestige realty at 121 north main street cedar city special thanks to amoeba crew for use of their song background indie rock licensed under creative commons subscribe to our podcast on itunes google play or wherever fine podcasts are found also check out our youtube channel where we post video of our interviews And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and our website at www.colorcountrypolitics.com.